everybody and welcome back to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast, episode four. Today we'll be exploring motivational interviewing and compassion. So without any further ado, I'm joined by my co-host and great friend, Sebastian Kaplan. Hi, Seb. Hey, Glenn. And we're really both quite excited because we're also now joined from the other side of the world in Australia by Dr. Stan Stendhal who's a clinical psychologist in private practice called Psychology Consultants, PTD. Stan's primarily a clinician providing therapy to a wide range of adult clients, specialising in working with people who've been experiencing post-traumatic stress, anxiety, depression, addictions and relationships problems. Stan's role in private practice also involves training and supervision, especially the training of motivational interviewing, as well as training and compassion-focused therapy. He's also an adjunct associate professor in the School of Psychology, University of Queensland, and has involved a number of research projects investigating compassion, self-compassion, motivation, and psychological well-being. In fact, his interests now have deepened in terms of the relationship between motivational development and compassion-focused therapy in both directions. Well, Stan, you are most welcome. We are, like I said, both really excited about talking today and certainly reading around the material that you've sent us and, and further afield I think today's conversation is going to be really quite interesting for a lot of people. So, hey, how are you doing? G'day. G'day from Australia. I'm doing well. It's about 10 p.m. here or 10.20 now, p.m. at night. And I'm also very excited. I've been looking forward to this all week, actually. I I was thinking it's a little bit like um, the Three, Stoo- Stro- Three Stooges. Okay. <laughs> Except I'm the only one with hair by the looks of just looking Ooh, at the... Uh, touchy, <laughs> touchy, yeah. Low, low blow right off the bat. Yeah, nice. Yes, no, I'm really um, happy to be here and, and keen to talk a bit about compassion and MI. Great. And yourself, Seb, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. It's it's 8 in the morning here in North Carolina. Actually, I was just uh, it just struck me that we're, we're literally at all all spots on the clock here with Myself in the morning, you in the early afternoon, and Stan in the evening. So that's a that's an interesting dynamic for us. A truly trans-global conversation today on compassion and motivation to win. I suppose one of the things we could kick off with, Stan, is is that idea of of understanding what what this notion of compassion is, because in one of our earlier podcasts we were talking about the spirit, and obviously compassion is mentioned there, but it's it's maybe not going into a lot of detail, and I was wondering, could you maybe kick off and just give us some ideas about what compassion really is and some of the definitions that might be floating about? Yeah, I think this is the um, the thing that really got me curious about compassion to begin with was uh, when Miller and Rolnick added compassion to the MI spirit, um, probably in, in the, I guess, 2013, in the third edition of their book. And a little bit was described there about compassion and what that might mean in the context of MI. It's sort of to be compassion. To be compassionate is to actively sort of promote the other's welfare and to give priority to the other's needs. Uh, and I, I think it, the idea was that it was added because some elements of the spirit previously, you know, working collaboratively, uh, being evocative being respectful, a lot of those things can be done uh, in other professions. Salespeople, for example, might take that same kind of approach and and that's cool. Uh, But in MI, what we're doing is we're also adding this 
this other element, which is about really doing what we're doing in the service of the other person and in the service of trying to kind of alleviate or prevent suffering for the other person. And so uh, that was really what sparked my curiosity. So I started to look around and to try to identify what a bit more about what this compassion thing is. And, and also, of course, as a, a member of Mint and a trainer in MI, I was very curious too about how to sort of train it. Um, and so, you know, what, what is compassion? Um, is it kindness? Um, every, for, be kind for everybody you meet is fighting a harder battle, said Plato. And, and there's a really interesting kind of comparison there between compassion and kind. Or is it sort of acceptance? Um, or is it equality? Or is compassion some sort of action? Um, and so I, I was sort of um, trying to, to ponder all this. I thought I might just sort of throw it to you because it's often interesting to get everyone's kind of point of view. What what are some words w- that you would say would kind of relate to compassion and, and perhaps, you know, a definition or, or even just words that relate to what compassion is? What do you guys think? I guess for me, if I think, thinking of that question, there's certainly a caring that would take place. Uh, so mm. being, being moved in some way, both emotionally and in, with, with some sort of action behind it. I guess that's the, that's the piece that I keep hearing about what separates compassion with, you know, other terms like sympathy or empathy is there's the action component. Mm. The action part of it is a relatively new idea for me that um, it, it was the idea of being able to hold, I suppose, the experience of someone else with kindness in the heart or love for them or a desire for them to be well. But the action part of it is then the, the willingness to do something that will be of benefit to the other. And certainly that fits with how motivational interviewing resonates for me now is that not just wanting to do, wanting to, wanting to be helpful. It's, it's knowing how to be helpful and recognizing that being helpful is decided by the other person rather than the practitioner. So that's my sense of it is that I'm not doing this for me, I'm doing this for you, but it's, it, I have you in mind when I'm doing it. Yeah, I think those are some, some really wonderful points. And, and um, sometimes we just sort of think of compassion as, as perhaps a feeling state or something like that, but it, it really is a, a multidimensional construct, really. It does in, involve care for, for well-being and, and interest in the other person's well-being. It, it might even involve things like empathy and sympathy and feeling moved by suffering. And then at some point, it, it really is also, it's kind of like a motivation. Um, Paul Gilbert, who is the person who originally developed uh, compassion-focused therapy and the compassionate mind, uh, he defines compassion as the sensitivity to suffering in self and others with a motivation and commitment to try to alleviate and, and prevent it. And the thing that I 
feel is really wonderful for us in MI is that that just in that in that definition, you can see the bi-directional nature of it. That compassion comes to to be a part of MI in that it creates a motivation and intention in the MI practitioner to want to help others and be in service of alleviating or preventing their suffering. But, you know, MI can also be brought to compassion, uh, especially around that notion of compassion as a motivation. And, you know, sometimes we can feel two ways about compassion and compassion isn't boundless. There are things that can, you know, kind of become barriers for us in terms of actual compassionate action. So that, that's what I've really been fascinated about is the idea that, that both compassion and MI can really sort of serve each other and, and you know, um, make each of them, you know, more effective. So there's boundaries to the, the experience individuals can give or have in their compassion towards others and from what you're describing it sounds that the compassion can can both grow and fall back again depending on circumstances yeah exactly i mean there's a number of uh sort of uh appraisals i guess that we make uh when we're looking at a person who's suffering and and you know the for example we might make appraisals about the relevance of the sufferer to ourselves. You know, are they relevant to us? Are they similar to us? Do they have the same goals or value as, as us? And those sorts of things can creep in to influence whether or not we have that compassionate motivation and whether we act on that. Or, or secondly, uh, the sufferer's deserving of, deservingness of help. They're, whether we see them as trustworthy and cooperative or of good character or maybe if we feel as if they're to blame for their own suffering but you know those sorts of um, appraisals start to shape our compassion as well and and then thirdly a little bit like Glenn you said a moment ago with with the question of how or that sense of ability you know do we feel able to cope with the situation, with the suffering? Do we feel emotionally able to cope with that? Or, or secondly, do we have uh, the, the knowledge or the skill in terms of what to do and, and how to help that suffering? So uh, I think there are often these appraisals that go through our mind, perhaps even just unconsciously, which influence whether or not we take action. I, I was down the uh, park with my two kids um, Freya, who's 16, and, and Harry, who's 13, and also the dog, Bruno, the chocolate Labrador. And um, there were these two guys who were uh, sort of doing something over the side. They were older fellas. They, you know, I think they came from one of the local hostels that is in the area, and, and one guy was lying on the ground, and the other guy was sort of pulling at his arm, and, and Harry goes, oh... Um, what are they doing? It looks like he's trying to help him stretch. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, no, I think, I think something's really happening there. So I, I went over and, and um, tried to assess the situation. And, you know, I, I felt nervous about it. I wasn't really sure what, what was going to happen when I got there, whether I might just get yelled at or um, they'd 
been drinking, I suspect, and one of the guys was sort of pretty much passed out and I was trying to assess the situation and and then some other fellow comes over and says, oh, you know, don't call the ambulance, you know, we don't want to bother them with all of this, just call the police or something like that. And it was just really interesting to see those little appraisals sneaking in. For me, it was a nervousness and what do I do? And perhaps for this other guy, it was these guys don't really deserve help anyway. They, they look at them, they're sort of, it's all their own fault maybe or, or something like that. He just wanted to, to call the police. So I guess that's the sort of stuff I was talking about, that compassion isn't really boundless. It can depend on those appraisals. And the idea I think for an MI practitioner is actually to bring awareness to that, to bring awareness to our own appraisals and to be able to work with those in one way or another, maybe to, uh, to open ourselves to, to some different possibilities or maybe in the end to um, decide, you know, that there's certain groups of people actually that we're better off referring on uh, because we're, we're, we're not as able to be compassionate with that particular group mm. as others. Yeah, so the, you're really speaking to... I suppose the internal world of the practitioner and and I, and I think a very helpful and valuable way I imagine there are listeners who are not necessarily just new to the profession there could certainly be veterans in whatever profession they're in and and they might find themselves quite troubled with judgments that they might notice or experience about the people that they're trying to help there may be a sense that you know they have to be the best possible physician, nurse, psychologist, social worker, you name it, and and that part of their striving to be the best is that they shouldn't think negatively, they shouldn't have maybe preferences about one client or the other, that they shouldn't look at their schedule and say, oh no, I have so-and-so coming in a couple of hours, uh, and it seems like what you're saying, Stan, is that part of the role of compassion for an MI practitioner would be to main, certainly maintain an awareness of, of those sorts of reactions and thoughts, but kind of reduce the level of judgment that one might experience towards oneself and, and to try to make use of it and, um, and, and ultimately maybe decide that that they're not the right person or the right fit, but but it's also it's just kind of making it a little bit more of a flexible response or I suppose relationship with those internal appraisals, as you say. Hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick really invite us to do with bringing compassion into the spirit of MI is that you know I guess every next client we see sort of needs and deserves you know the same kind of compassion that the last client we saw might have received and so yes I think it is really interesting now for MI practitioners just to be really reflecting on their compassion uh, the different kinds of clients they're working with and 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 how their compassion you know sort of works with those different people uh, and also ways to to keep the compassion kind of buoyant and and manage fatigue 
as well across a long day or across a week or or you know the years of practice so yeah i think it's we really have that that invitation now to really put something of a spotlight on on compassion and how to cultivate it right and, and as, a, as a lesson to talk it's almost like the invitation is for us as practitioners to step back because in some ways by exploring compassion and, and the elements of it and that that what's going around it is it's almost like you're redefining or clarifying what helping really is and the invitation then for us practitioners mm. is to you know this is this is what really works and this is how to go about it mm. and you said something earlier glenn about i think you were alluding to the idea of you know is compassion defined by the giver of the compassion or in fact by the person receiving it right <laughs> and so there's a lot there's a lot to that as well you know like we I think that fits beautifully with with MI from the point of view of, uh, you know, we we don't necessarily know what's best for any given person. We we need to stay really, even in compassion, we need to stay open to um, people and their and their needs and their preferences and the things that actually might be most most suitable for them. So that's the that's the the focused element of the MA part where we are inviting the client to tell us what it is the difficulty or the issue or the challenge that is they're facing from their perspective and from what you're describing being compassionate is being present to that without imposing our assessment or our program plan or intervention on them based on what we think is best for them yeah i mean in some in a funny sort of a way motivational interviewing is compassionate action because it is about trying to develop a really great understanding of a person and their, their suffering or their need and then sort of exploring with them what might be most helpful in terms of alleviating that suffering. And not to shift gears necessarily, but I, you had mentioned the, the bi-directionality of it in, in the relationship between compassion and motivational interviewing and uh, compassion is part of MI and part of the MI spirit. And, um, and then there's, there's an element where MI can help with fostering or enhancing an individual's sense of compassion that you've, I've heard you speak before. And in some of the readings I've done, there's, there also seems to be a bi-directionality within a person with regard to compassion, where someone might experience compassion in, in sort of an outward way towards others. And then there's also the notion or the concept of self-compassion. And I wonder mm -hmm. if you might talk a bit about that distinction. Yeah, so um, I think this is a really fascinating piece of the compassionate mind approach to all of this and the idea that uh, we, there are sort of three flows of compassion. So compassion might flow from the self to the other. Uh, compassion might also flow from others to the self. And then compassion might flow from the self to the self. And there's a, a Jack Cornfield, who you probably know is a, a Buddhist psychologist in, in America. And um, one of his quotes is along the lines of compassion without self-compassion is incomplete 
And I think this is a really interesting thing for MI practitioners to think about as well, because in a sense, even how uh, compassion is is pitched in in the MI book, uh, it really focuses on that idea of compassion from self to the other. Uh, And it almost is sort of suggesting that there there can't really be any self-interest in that. It has to be a sort of a very giving compassion to the other. Um, but I think for MI practitioners, we have to, or not have to, but it's very useful to think about also keeping one eye on the self. Uh, and, you know, self-compassion becomes a part of self-care and maybe even how we can maintain this kind of compassionate stance. In, uh, and so we're cultivating compassion. When, when we're cultivating compassion, we're cultivating the kind of compassion we might offer to other people Um, but we're also cultivating really that same compassion in some ways to offer ourselves as well and the third flow of course is really interesting as well and that is that um, being willing to receive compassion for others and it's a lot of practitioners and clinicians and so on find that flow particularly difficult as well is to be able to to be on the receiving end of compassion at times. And yet um, a lot of work recently that, that's looked at these three flows has found that a person's openness to receiving compassion from another is actually most predictive of uh, psychological well-being or, or depression or you know, those sorts of psychological outcomes. So we're wanting to get a good balance between giving compassion, receiving compassion, and self-compassion. So there's a sense of an individual or others, I suppose, sense of deserving in relation to the, the reception of compassion and um, that idea that you were describing that we practitioners, and I imagine many of the audience will recognize this, that the idea of helping is really what we do for others and our, our self-care comes further down the priority list and what you're describing is is that it needs to be included the better we include ourselves in the care of all and or more particularly recognizing if compassion involves a notion for the good of all the for the good of all includes ourselves and is what we are doing yes, in our role yeah. our contact with other people having a negative impact on us which in itself is counterintuitive to the notion of compassion exactly beautifully said uh i was um i went to the the mindful self-compassion retreat with Kristen neff and chris germer um and i was really struggling with this idea of self-compassion in a way because i was worried that if i put attention to myself in that way of self-kindness and so on that um it you know what i'd have to sacrifice some of the compassion that i offer others and that's obviously a very big part of my life is is about helping others and chris kermis said something a bit like what you just said and he sort of said actually what all we're doing is we're just extending our own circle of compassion to also include ourselves and i thought oh yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean I'm a human being. Compassion is about, you know, helping human beings who might be suffer and, and other living beings as well. And so, of course, I can be included in into into that circle as well. Mm. 
right? This was really, I, I suppose, timely for me in a sense, just as far as a, a clinical challenge. And Stan, just to go back to, to what you said earlier about a, a, a major predictor of one's psychological well-being is one's openness to receive compassion from others. And it, it, I just found myself thinking about a, a client I've had this week. So part of my job is as a, as a psychologist is working on an adolescent psychiatric inpatient service where you know kids will come for you know, usually some suicidal event and will stay for about a week or so on the in the hospital to stabilize and um, hopefully you know change change some course of, of, in their life and and uh, in, in the family's life of course and there's this young woman young girl about 15 years old and uh, has just really experienced a lot of hardship and and she brought with her a lot of outward behavioral challenges, I suppose, and challenges that, that she's probably developed with, with good reason and in, in, in a need to sort of protect herself in any way that she could growing up. And, but she also, despite those behavioral challenges, she, she has this capacity of really uh, kind of drawing people in, in a, in a very caring way. It, it's not, it's not the kind of interaction style, I suppose, that makes it really hard to connect. She, she's really drawn a lot of people in and she's received a lot of uh, outward expressions of care and compassion, I think both from staff and, and from the other kids that are on the, on the, in the hospital. And, and so when I'm doing this group with the teens every day, uh, one of the things that occurred a couple of days ago was, was from two or three of the peers, and, and I would say from myself as well, outward expressions of, of compassion. And she had a really, really hard time with that. It was almost a, a rejection of it or a statements of, you know, I, I, that's not true or, yeah, but I always mess things up anyway. So what your, your comment there really resonated just with this recent experience clinically. I, I guess I just wonder what are some things that you might say to that or when, when you experience that in the work that you do, what, how, how might you respond to that? Yeah, well, certainly um, sometimes, you know, kindness or caring or warmth or, or compassion uh, can actually represent a threat to our clients, um, especially for those who perhaps have experienced interpersonal traumas or abandonment or, or rejection or other, and especially when they've experienced that at the hands of caregivers so to them often you know getting close to someone or someone getting close to them uh you know is is very threatening it means that they might hurt you or that you might lose them and so often when working i think in the context of mi but and certainly in the context of compassion focused therapy really the early work is around trying to um, explore and resolve the fears of compassion, the, the fears, blocks, and resistances of compassion. And, and uh, people can have those sorts of fears, blocks, and res resistances to do with compassion for others, compassion from others, or self-compassion. Uh, and 
I sort of feel a little bit like, you know, this is where motivational interviewing really plays a very useful role. So, for example, if, if I ask you, Seb, um, what, what would you say are some of the, the not-so-good things about receiving compassion or, or someone offering you help or assistance or support or, or compassion? What are, what are some of the not-so-good things about that for you? I imagine that there might be an initial, an initial questioning of it, whether it's doubting the validity of it or maybe questioning the motives that the other person might have, how genuine they are. Mm. So it kind of goes through a, a quick filter of, yeah, is this person really being straight up with me? I guess another filter might be just how I view myself and, and, you know, I like, like anyone else have, you know, doubts about myself or doubts about my, my abilities or the direction of things for me from time to time. And, and so if I receive compassion from, from someone else, I, I might find myself really comparing that or, or trying to reconcile that with how I might be viewing myself at that point in time. And, and the, the contradiction there might lead me to stick with what I, what I believe in that moment, and which is often what we think ourselves, you know, hmm. I guess those are just two, so, two reactions there. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's, it's, tricky to know the the genuineness of the person that might be there giving you compassion and wondering about their motives and what does that do for for the relationship between you and perhaps even the the the, the power differentials there and that sort of thing and and then the other bit is to do with just what might that mean about you and if you're someone who's receiving compassion how does that really fit with how you see yourself and also, it almost sounded a bit like a kind of a self-criticism kicks in there, a sort of more critical view of yourself or what you should do or should be able to do mm -hmm. um, as well. Um, so, so what, what about the flip side? I mean, what, what would you say are some of the good things about being open to compassion for others or having others come and, 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 and offer some sort of help or support or or compassion at, at times? Well, just in the same way that we really tend to believe ourselves quite readily and, and oftentimes without, I suppose, a critical appraisal of what we think of ourselves, if we are open to what others say and think and feel for us, we it can broaden our horizons in a way that allows us to see the world in a different way or through a different lens and quite possibly could foster some sort of personal growth that that wouldn't necessarily be possible if we kept our eyes and ears strictly focused on what what we think what our thoughts are about ourselves or about the world and to be open to 
another person to to allow someone else in, so to speak. I, it is a moment where there's a connection between two people or or maybe multiple people, but let's just, to be simple about it, it it's, a, it, it's a connection that occurs between two people. And and I think healthy connection and, and connection that's that's supportive and uh, positive, I suppose, is is a healthy experience for, for most people. So it, just a change of perspective yeah, so what, as well as opportunity to connect. Yeah, exactly. The the um, on the one hand, it can f create a little bit of a sense of reluctance around you know what's what's this other person's real motives and and you know is it a sign that I'm weak if I need this help or what's it saying about me and some of that self criticism might kick in. And then on the other hand, it, it, it actually, maybe it does offer some personal growth or new perspectives or, but, but also that very important element of social connection and, and affiliation, <clears throat> belonging, those kinds of things, which are very um, core human needs as well. I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, safeness, um, trust, understanding, are important sort of backdrops, but if you're able to, um, you know, kind of create some of that with a person, then there may very well be some benefits of, of being open to compassion from others as well to, to do with growth and connection. And so that very gentle exploration of what a person's experience is with, with receiving compassion from others, that not, not trying to convince one that one side of it's better than the other. It's, it's really just part of the, the, the work would be exploring how people receive it and, and sort of the pros and cons of it. That, that, that's exactly what I was sort of just playing with there a little bit was just to see um, if we could explore what you know, everyone experiences, which is they feel like everything kind of two ways about this sort of stuff. And it's often a kind of a, it depends type of a feeling. And, and so, uh, yeah, the, the idea there is to see if there's a way to, to use MI and, and many of those core skills just to gently explore and, and, you know, maybe gradually um, resolve some of that ambivalence that people can feel about especially receiving compassion and self-compassion. I find those two in particular, um, people you know, can have certain blocks and resistances there. So in some ways it's that there's a recognition that compassion and the ability to be compassionate, receive compassion, is ultimately of benefit to human beings. And what you're describing, the interventions are, are finding out where the individual is on any continuum of, of that compassionate journey and meeting them there and that sounds like that the motivational interview will be of use in helping people navigate how to explore how to be more compassionate to other people and allow themselves to be more compassionate themselves and receive compassion ultimately for their own well-being yeah that's right so compassion compassion is very much um self-compassion is very much about uh, you know, sort of doing things in the service of one's own well-being. And that could be ultimately any number of possible actual actions. Uh, 
Um, you know, for one person, self-compassion might be going for a run. And for another person, self-compassion might be not doing so much damn running right. <laughs> or something. Right. So um, the actual, the self-compassionate action is a very individual thing, but it's that idea of really exploring that motivation around uh, being able to, to sort of, you know, take steps in the service of one's own well-being or, or in the well-being of, of others. From my own perspective, I'm curious about your own thought about, do you believe that all of us have the capacity or the need to be compassionate in a, in a similar way? Or is it that given the fact that we're human beings and we live in a social, in a social network that we have to show our compassion in slightly different ways because of the different roles we have within our community and on, on, in the world as a whole? Mm. I mean, I, I would say uh, that compassion really is a um, innate part of what it is to be human, actually. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of evolutionary theory around that really speaks to that, that speaks to the idea that uh, compassion and, and compassionate motivation and that, that, that um, uh, motivation and commitment to help those around us and to nurture and care for um, others uh, really is is kind of central to the survival of our species actually that um, archaeological evidence of you know prehistoric human remains that that have been found and and that show evidence of disease in the bones that really the person could only have possibly made it to that age had they been really looked after and fed and watered and cared for. Uh, we, we've always cared for each other. Uh, we can be obviously also the cruelest species on the planet. We can be very cruel to our own species and also terribly, terribly cruel to other species as well. So it's, it's not all about <laughs> compassion and um, we see in the world a lot at the moment, I think it's long been there, but it's very prominent at the moment. Some of this division and tribalism and, and fighting and, um, and cruelty. Uh, but as a species, we are kind of uh, innately compassionate. But then I think we do also then take on different kinds of compassionate roles. I mean, my dad, for example, was an engineer. And he spent a lot of time, I guess, on his calculator and working out, you know, angles and thicknesses. And I'm not really sure, actually. But, um, but engineering is an incredibly compassionate career because you are, um, you know, most engineering has saved more lives than really anything through, you know, being able to work towards, you know, dealing with, with sewage well, dealing with, um, constructions and housing and shelter and things not falling down and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, in its own way, engineering can certainly be a, a compassionate profession as well, just as, um, you know, being able to sit with a person and listen and empathise and understand what they're going through can be compassionate too. So there's a whole range of different ways, I think, that compassion can be represented. Uh, but I do really believe that we all have that compassionate 
uh, capacity and that we can cultivate that through awareness and sensitivity and then through this motivation commitment to, to act. And that's an interesting way of looking at engineering and you know, building things. I imagine if you were to ask an engineer or ask people, you know, what do engineers do? It's like they build stuff. You know, they design stuff mm. and they build stuff. And and that seemed that could be like the focus of that. But that example of of expanding the lens of of what engineering is and how it how you can view compassion in sort of hidden ways. As a practitioner, it, it could really be helpful in working with somebody and, and trying to, to sort of unearth elements about them that they may not readily see if, if they're viewing engineering as a way to design and build stuff. Mm. Yeah, well, the other example of that, I work a lot with uh, with combat veterans. And, you know, at first glance, they hear the word compassion and, and it kind of comes along with sort of more touchy-feely uh, types of connotations. Uh, but sometimes when you talk to them about some of these evolved, you know, kind of ideas around, you know, just sort of looking after one another and, and the science of compassion and, and so on. And they, they often really, they'll start to say, actually, you know, my whole career was really in a way, a compassionate motivation. In, in a way it was, I mean, they, they do lots of different things, but to leave their own country, to go to another country, to to try to um, free the oppressed or, or to, whatever it might be, uh, to look after their mates, you know, there's a whole range of ways that, they, that um, they can start to connect with that compassion that might be within them. And then once they've got connection with that, then we can build on that. Then we cultivate it and, and sort of um, uh, create more. So it sounds like when, like when you're talking to soldiers who, I imagine, maybe have a sense of themselves as protectors and and not having that connection to the compassion that the practitioner has that opportunity in rephrasing reflections and more particularly about affirmations, have the opportunity to begin to introduce the compassionate idea, the compassionate content of what it is they're already doing rather than trying to introduce them to mm. compassion that's helping them recognise what it is their 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 desire to protect other people, their desire to put their own their willingness to put their own welfare at risk in the protection of others in itself is a very compassionate act when seen from that from that perspective. That's a really great little um, kind of connection there. That that a big part of of um, starting to work with someone and cultivate compassion is is to be able to affirm those strengths that might relate to. A, a sort of some of the compassionate attributes that that someone might have, uh, and compassion is, is you know it's it's a bit about kindness, but it's about other things as well. It's about wisdom, and it's about strength, and it's about courage, and sometimes it's about sacrifice. Um, yeah, there's often these really nice uh, angles that we can take to sort of identify those components of compassion in the person or in ourselves, for that matter. And then start to to kind of cultivate that and make those connections. I think I think often um, I have noticed over the years that uh, you know it, it it is a little bit harder to to bring men to the party with compassion. They often will have a 
a sort of a sense that compassion is, um, you know, sort of touchy-feely or, or soft or nurturing or, you know, but, you know, compassion really is strong and powerful and, and courageous and wise and a whole range of characteristics, many of which um, women and men can mm. uh, kind of connect with. Just maybe about how do we sell it differently to men? Mm. I'm doing a little bit of research at the moment with an honours student at UQ and we're, we're giving um, uh, uh, this fairly long list of just compassion-related words and trying to uh, get a sense of the relatability of different words to women versus men, people of different ages and people of different cultures across Australia and Singapore are the two cultures that we're we're looking at because yeah I think that's right I think that uh, you know we sometimes have to uh, think about compassion in ways that might feel sort of relatable to the person that we're talking with and that that includes often you know other clinicians or MI practitioners what what are the what's the language that we can use around compassion so that it makes sense for them and it fits for them and it feels like something that they can really, you know, hook into and, 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 you know, use with, with their clients. I imagine there are even times where a client might use a word that's, that, that sort of means what, what you and what, what, how you would define compassion, let's say, but they may not use the word compassion itself. They might use a different word. And uh, mm. like looking out, looking out for my my mates, as you said, or or uh, yeah. caring for for teammates if it's an athlete, and and it, it may not even be necessary to insert the word compassion. That you know, I wouldn't want people to think that that needs to kind of be forced into the conversation. It's really just these these concepts that seem to be central, and this sort of openness for camaraderie or or, or caring or, or whatever the words that that a client would be comfortable with. Yeah, I, I really agree. If if we're working with a a bunch of young blood, you know, in the you know sort of a sporting team, or you know, and they're they're sort of really trying to, um, you know, kind of they're focusing on on high performance and and uh, you know um, mateship and camaraderie and teamwork and a whole range of other things. We might not need to be talking about the word compassion per se but it's in there it's it's part of what's really going on and and you know people uh you'll you'll often see really quite compassionate acts on the sporting field and 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 often within a team but but some of the most beautiful examples are when it maybe is across the to the other team as well And, and so those are really powerful moments i think with with um young people or athletes or well, one thing I was struck or I was thinking about and, and also imagining myself as a as a, an audience member and, and someone who may be following the, the podcast from the beginning is when thinking about how a practitioner uses MI and, and Glenn, we, we probably talked more from the standpoint of helping people with behavior changes. I'm sure we've used the word behavior mm. several times. Uh, and, and talked about the ambivalence about making changes that are behavioral or, or sort of outward, you know, visible from by others. And it, I was struck that a lot of what, what you're talking about, Stan, with regard to compassion, isn't so much 
ambivalence about some outward behavior, although of course actions are part of that, some of what you're talking about at least is, is the ambivalence about stuff that happens within an individual, both the practitioner mm. and, and the client. And then that's something I think within the world of MI that, that Bill and Steve have begun to explore, and not just Bill and Steve, others as well, have begun to explore or expand how MI can be helpful beyond whether someone's drinking or not or smoking or not, that there's a host of internal experiences that we're ambivalent about that could, could benefit from an MI kind of conversation. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's very interesting because the compassion and self-compassion is, is in a sense the motivation or perhaps guiding principle or perhaps it even fits in, in from an MI point of view in terms of values sometimes um, and that at the exploring end, we might be exploring the, the, um, uh, the good things and the less good things around a com you know, compassion broadly or compassion as, as a motivation. But sometimes at the, the commitment end, uh, where we are actually starting to define more clearly things in um, maybe behavioral terms. Uh, and that's where wisdom, uh, the wisdom of compassion is so important because that really is about trying to wisely, uh, you know, sort of choose the kinds of actions to take that are most compassionate. Um, Paul Gilbert sort of gives the story of how, you know, you're at the beach and you're just sort of looking out to sea and then all of a sudden you see someone put their hand up struggling and sort of drowning and you go, you sort of throw off your attire and then you dive into the water and you think, oh no, I can't actually swim. Um, so there is certainly unskillful compassion and skillful compassion and that's now getting at the behavioral end of it that one of the little research projects we completed last year um, at uq and, and also curtin university in in western australia was looking at um self i, I mentioned before self um well self-compassion is also predictive of depression and so higher self-compassion can sometimes mean less depression uh, but we were looking at whether behavioural activation might be a mediator of that relationship. And, and yeah, sure enough, we found that um, uh, behavioural activation was a, um, a, a mediator of that relationship so that the higher compassion, higher self-compassion was related to higher behavioural activation and that was related to lower depression. So that, that's just a little kind of, snapshot example of I think exactly what you're saying that that we can explore that internal world and we can sort of resolve some of our thoughts around that and then often that, that translates into nuanced behavioral changes that that might relate to that wisely relate to that that problem as well one of the things that that struck me when I was reading some of the literature was some of the definitions refer to the sensitivity or the noticing the noticing of someone else's suffering as a component part of the compassionate structure. And I know from working with a lot of practitioners, one of the things that they often describe is the discomfort that they will be feeling 
in the relationship with the client. And what I'm curious about is what do you think? Part of what I'm exploring with them is that a bit like your dad as an engineer, the way he presented his compassion was to do good by making sure structures were well 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 built and safe for everyone else and soldiers are being driven by a desire to protect and to keep safe whereas we we practitioners in some way our innate need is to be helpful to maintain the well-being of the human nest that that it's almost like the gift that we have as helpers is the sensitivity a more acute sensitivity particularly to other people's distress and that's what's triggering our efforts to be helpful and intervene with people and that in some ways that the mm. being self-compassionate and and manifesting compassion towards others is recognizing that sometimes what we're experiencing in the context of being with somebody else is their experience that we have the capacity to feel their pain whether it's it's a transference or the uh, mirror neurons or is it's actually the fact that we have the, the capacity to feel another person's experience as a way of understanding it from their perspective and it seems mm. like part of what we can be doing in helping practitioners being better and more comfortable practitioners is helping them learn to tolerate the experience of being with a client in distress without themselves becoming distressed Mm-hmm. And I wonder what thoughts you have on that, Stan, and what work or what ideas you would have to how to support a client if that was the case, that we we are experiencing other people's pain. And one of the things that makes make a step back is our inability or unwillingness to contain or tolerate that discomfort while we're there with them. Yeah, the the um the the CFT kind of description of uh, the attributes of a compassionate person, I guess, include that sensitivity, that, that ability to be aware of, of suffering in, in, in others or in ourselves, a kind of a caring motivation or a care for well-being, uh, that non-judgment piece that, that we mentioned earlier, uh, and then empathy and sympathy. And I think this is the bit that's often really interesting for us to all consider and for MI practitioners to think about is is the roles of empathy and sympathy in in compassion uh, and empathy is a little bit what you were saying there that that there's cognitive empathy which is the ability to uh, of perspective taking and to kind of understand what another person might be feeling uh, and then there's affective empathy, which is much more about resonating with that feeling. And so with act- affective imp- empathy, if a person is suffering or, or in pain, we feel some of that suffering and pain. Uh, and that's a really um, tough, important but tough position to be in is, is to be there with a person empathizing in such a way that we resonate with that suffering Uh, and then sympathy is kind of where empathy is we're able to resonate and maybe even feel the other person's feelings and pain and suffering sympathy is a feeling of our own it's it's a kind of a 
a feeling that we have in response to that and, and we see another person who's suffering and we feel for them and we feel moved by that suffering or we feel touched by that suffering and and so but that's a whole little cluster of feelings as well that that we experience when when being with someone so the sixth um attribute of the compassionate person at least from a cft perspective is distress tolerance is that ability to tolerate manage sit with accept our own distress that might come up when we are there in the presence of of someone who's suffering um and um if we feel more personal distress in that situation, then we're more likely to take some sort of action to reduce our distress, which usually will be, well, in some cases, it will be um, moving away from the suffering. But I think, too, the other thing that it can be is, is it can feed into the writing reflex, mm. that all of a sudden we're feeling distress because we're feel, feeling so moved by that person's position we we can feel the pain that they're going through we really care for their well-being and we're wanting uh, them not to suffer um, but we're, we become distressed by it and so therefore we we sort of step in to fix it but that's sort of motivated in a way to to alleviate our own distress so yes I definitely think that we're needing to um, you know, really kind of practice the distress tolerance part of that, which, you know, is many of the stuff that we, that we know and that we preach to our clients often, you know, is, is to be able to, um, you know, sort of practice soothing rhythm breathing, practice imagery, practice mindfulness, um, practice certain self-care activities. I mean, I, I um, between clients, I always... I, I show someone out and then I go back into my room and I start to wipe down the whiteboard and there might not be anything on the whiteboard, but I'm wiping down the whiteboard just to kind of get a clean slate and it's kind of just that little bit of moment to to bring it back down again and, and um, sort of be ready for the for the next person. So, so one eye on distress tolerance, I think, mm. is a very good mm. idea. It's almost like you're suggesting that by wiping down the whiteboard, you're putting that episode to bed, bringing your attention back to yourself so that the next person gets the cleanest, most focused, most present version of you. Yeah, and, and, and that little ritual is just, just what, I, what I do. But, but lots of people have um, you know, little ways to, to do that. But it, it can be important because in the parian thrust of a busy clinic or or something like that we can feel quite pressured to just go back to back and and um and not have those little moments to manage these accumulating feelings that we might be getting uh, working from one person's or with one person suffering to the next yeah that you hear that a lot of the this transition from one to the other to the other of clients or a physician seeing multiple patients and just feeling almost like you just can't catch your breath and you know listening to a, mm. a psychiatry resident just the other day talk about his awareness of working with actually with the same with the same client I mentioned earlier today just mm. how the experience with her had he, he noticed that he was becoming a bit 
consumed by that particular case because he was noticing how while he was working on on things documentation or whatever for other kids on the unit he found himself still focused mm. on this other uh, this other girl that he was helping uh, helping with her care and um, and it, but it, it so it's, a, it's certainly a, a, an experience I'm sure a lot of the listeners would resonate with um, and one of the beautiful things about that stand was it, it didn't require you know like a 30 minute meditation it didn't require you know going to the gym and working out it was I imagine a very brief thoughtful moment where I, I imagine you took some deep breaths you had a ritual that has worked for you but just you know the ritual itself isn't necessarily what you know, to work for everyone else but just finding a way that makes sense for the for all the practitioners out there listening is how do I take this brief break whether it's 30 seconds a minute two minutes whatever it might be just to just sort of regather my thoughts and and then move forward hmm. one of the nice phrases that I like that someone mentioned in a, a participant when mentioned in one of my workshops is is the notion of micro moments of self-compassion mm-hmm. sort of throughout the day. And I, I think that's actually in some ways more important than, you know, having a big holiday or even, you know, having days off, but rather having these micro ma- moments of self-compassion across the day. And sometimes that's in the breaks between clients, but sometimes it's about being able to just send and receive or give and receive compassion on the breath as you're listening to your client, that you're listening, you're attentive, and you're just slowing the breath and you're just breathing out compassion to that person that you're working with. And then you just breathe in compassion for yourself so that you're actually uh, still very attentive, still listening. In fact, you're probably listening better because the breath is able to kind of slow the mind um, but you're just practicing these little strategies of soothing, rhythm breathing um, during sessions or, or alongside sessions or in amongst the work you're doing. So, so yeah, I, I think little micro moments of self-compassion is a great and important way to, um, you know, kind of keep your compassion for others buoyant as well. <laughs> Time has caught up with us and there's still so much and so many different things we could be exploring with you Stan so really, we really appreciate you taking the time given the fact that it's late at night for you as well you really opened up the box of compassion for us and began to let us explore some of the component parts and, and the efforts that have been made now to try and explain it in, in a way that's I suppose secular in its, in its style and, and helping people to understand how it can be beneficial to them as individuals but also in their support for other people. Um, so I'm, I'm quite sure there's people out there, Stan, who are more intrigued at the start, at the end of this conversation than they were at the start. So if people are interested in how might they go about exploring compassion a bit more further, or can you point them in a couple of different directions? And, and if, if you were happy to receive communications, how can people contact you? Yeah, well, the there's a couple of, uh, organizations that are great to to check out and and the first one would be the compassionate mind foundation that's the foundation in the uk that was established by 
Paul Gilbert. And uh, there's quite a lot of resources on there related to his model. Uh, you can become a member of that site for a small fee and then it opens up to a whole bunch of other resources and clinical sort of tools and questionnaires and things like that. Uh, and the Compassionate Mind Foundation has an annual international conference and I'm going to be uh, having the great privilege of, of uh, presenting at this year's CMF International Conference. I'm actually presenting on... Uh, compassion-focused therapy and the role of motivational interviewing in exploring and resolving inhibitors and facilitators of compassion. So uh, that's a workshop that I'll be doing in, as a pre-workshop for the, for the conference. Um, but there's other many great workshops as well. And also the conference is, is full of, of um, great talks. So if people are interested, um, Stan, if people are interested, when is that? How do they sign up to it is is it open to the public or is it more restricted well it's uh definitely open to everybody or anybody you don't have to be a member of anything to go it's the i think around the 5th 6th 7th of october this year and it's held in london uh so actually glenn i'll be in your neck of the woods yeah. uh, in october um, and there's a there's a couple of a couple of minties who've who've talked to me about possibly actually going to that conference. So yeah, no, it, it's um, and and if you want want to find out more information, you can go to the Compassionate Mind Foundation website, and they've got links there to describe the the, the conference itself. Uh, and uh, in America, there is the. Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. That's uh, at Stanford University. And it's the director there is Professor James Doty. And he's been another very um, sort of kind and generous sort of mentor to me over the years as well. And, and uh, they do some wonderful stuff at CCARE. Uh, not so much in the, in the CFT sort of area, but They've developed a program called Compassion Cultivation Training, uh, which they run at, at Stanford. Um, and the other sort of major program that, that really is run in, in America is the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. And you can look up um, Mindful Self-Compassion, the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion uh, on the internet. And that's Kristen Neff and Chris Germer and their program. And that they run um, uh, Eight Week and, and other types of programs of mindful self-compassion as well. And um, in a much smaller way, uh, we've established the Compassionate Mind Research Group at the University of Queensland. And so we have a little podcast, much um, just a, a short 10-minute sort of a podcast that James Kirby and I, I do on a sort of a, a bit of an ad hoc basis talking about all things compassion and at the compassionate mind research group we we run the annual compassion symposium at uq which happens this year on the 7th and 8th of september and so if anyone wants to be in touch and i really do love this stuff and i love talking about it i'd be very happy to send people you know pdfs or or other things if they're interested um, is just to, to email me, stan at psychologyconsultants.com.au. 
so dot com dot au uh, at, at the end of that yes yeah. au for australia yeah right. uh, but also yeah just um uh, sort of just there's not many Stan Steindles in the world for some reason, but so if you just look me up, you'd probably find it right. if anyone is interested. Right. Well, great. Uh, well, Stan, it sounds like you have a lot of exciting uh, work ahead. Uh, great to, to introduce us to all of these wonderful organizations doing compassion-based work. And, uh, and it's been great to, to hear from you today hearing about the links between motivational interviewing and compassion and, and just the, this symbiotic relationship between the two. So thank you so much for joining us. We're going to finish it there. And uh, again, delighted that you made yourself available, Stan. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And uh, you know what? Maybe we'll see you in London in October, if not maybe in uh, New Orleans, if you're, if you're going there too to the Mint Forum. But again, fantastic to talk to you and uh, take care. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Enjoyed it.